Well, I like real estate just because uh, I, I like the benefit of being able to uh, have a mortgage pay off real estate over time so that when I retire, I have something. I like the fact that it's boring. I want to be able to be uh, entertained and travel and do a lot of things in my retirement, and that boring investment of real estate allows me to do that. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1219-1219. Thanks for joining us today. And we are going to talk about a few things today. Number one, where are the first-time buyers looking to buy their first home? And what does that mean to us as income property investors? What does the first-time buyer interest mean to us? Also, we asked you all, when you signed up for Meet the Masters, to tell us something interesting about yourself. And you know, we didn't have time to talk about this before, but we were reading the comments today and we thought they were so, well, just delightful. <laughs> so we want to share a few of those with you. And I've got our investment counselor, Carrie, with us here. She's been on the show before. Carrie, welcome back. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. So first time buyers. Well, this is not where they're looking, by the way. We should clarify that. This is where First American Title, that has a big research division, where they think first-time buyers should look because these areas, and we're in several of these markets, have very good housing affordability, don't they? Yeah, that's right, Jason. It's surprising that several of these markets are good for retail, but mostly for investors, too, for being affordable. Yeah, so you mean retail, like a first-time buyer would buy a retail home versus an investor purchase, right? Right, yeah. The single-family um, newlyweds might be buying their first home, but these are ideal for more for investors, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So some of the markets, you looked at this list of 10, and then you created a little bit of a like a little cheat sheet on it, which I thought was great. You just picked like three of the markets that we happen to be in. Uh, we're not in all of these markets. And I think for good reason, in some cases. <laughs> uh, so for example, Memphis, tell us a little bit about Memphis. Memphis is potentially our second longest running market. By the way, if anybody wants to know, and it's not on this list, coincidentally, but that doesn't mean it's not good. It's still very good. Our longest running market that we have consistently recommended and been in since my appearance in this investor-only industry back in 2004 is, drumroll please, Indianapolis. That's our longest running market. Now, many of the other markets we've been in and out of over time because 
we're area agnostic. And when the prices go up too much and the rents don't keep up, we stop recommending them. So yeah, the first one you profiled was Memphis with your cheat sheet. Tell us a little bit about that. So Memphis, along with Indianapolis, like you said, and uh, Cincinnati's on this list. So um, Dayton's pretty close there in the Ohio market. Um, So those are some of the markets that you'll see the single families. A few multifamilies might come up. The price range will be around 60000 to 140000 for your purchase of the property. Your RV ratio, the rent to value ratio, will be around 1%, maybe a little bit higher, 1.2%. So you could get a $100,000 property and it'll rent at $1,000 a month. So that's your 1% RV. The year is built. Ohio will be a little bit older. Memphis, Indianapolis will be um, somewhat in the mid-90s, but you're looking at an overall 1,900 new builds. Uh, we do have some new builds in the Memphis and uh, Mississippi markets. So, mm-hmm. One of the things I want to say, so basically what you did is you compared Memphis. That was the most comparable, I guess, to Indianapolis and northern Indiana, which is not Indianapolis. That's a, another market we have. And then York, Pennsylvania, our newest market. So good. I think that that's a good analysis. Cash flow between $175 a month and $250 per month with normal financing. So yeah, that's a good comparison. I think that's very accurate. One thing I want to say, Carrie, is that it is important what we all call things so we can agree on the terms. And a funny trend has happened over the past, uh, I don't know, I'll just say several years, that people are calling multifamily you know, duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. And when it's four units and under, a fourplex and under, that's considered a residential property. You know, you still get the normal residential, the really good desirable financing on those versus if it's five units or more, that's considered a commercial property and the financing is not nearly as good. But investors... I want to all try and agree on a term here. And what I mean by that is this. I don't think we should call duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes multifamily. Yes, technically they are. I think those should be called plexes. And then one unit is obviously a single family home. Well, unless it's a condo. See, this is a little complicated. And multifamily, when most people hear that, out in the broader world, outside of our little world, right? Multifamily is considered like an apartment complex, you know, that might have 25 units or it might have 125 units, okay? So I just sold a multifamily apartment complex that is 139 units that I own with one of our clients. By the way, Carrie, when the time comes, which won't be long, I can't wait to tell you that story of how I made like... Over $1.4 million on that deal by procrastinating. That story's coming up. I can't tell you yet because we're just getting through the inspections now and the deal's not done. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you later. You I remember, that story. Yeah. didn't you start this whole process like two years ago, three years ago? So uh, I am anxious to hear what happens. Well, oh no, I didn't know. It wasn't that much procrastination. This basically involved the first offer came in and my partner, Steve, who's our client, you know, you've heard me talk about him before and probably met him. He wanted to do that first deal And I kind of dilly-dallied around. I was busy with other things, and I didn't sign the offer. I didn't accept it. And then another offer came in. (laughs) 
So, so procrastination can be a very lucrative habit sometimes. <laughs> it, it's usually not, but once in a while, it works for you. Anyway, so multifamily is over five units and over. Okay, let's agree that's what it's called. Plexes are two to four units. Okay, so anyway, a lot of you are saying multifamily, and I think we should distinguish that. So anyway, minor thing, call it whatever you want. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. Okay, next one, Carrie. Well, on that, I mean, several of our local market specialists call it units or call it plexes, call it flats, call it, you know, so it also depends on the market of what the terminology is. Exactly. That's a really good point because geographically it varies. I remember when we were recommending another market that we're not recommending right now because, again, you know, the dynamics just don't continue to work. And what I mean by that, if you're new to the show, if you're already in the market and you've got a stabilized property, just keep your property and ride out the appreciation. Congratulations. You know, good for you. And at some point, consider doing a two for one or a three for one exchange using a 1031 exchange. And I've done that myself many times and talked about it on the show. In this market, they called it a four family or a three family or a two family, you know, meaning a duplex, triplex or fourplex. So they do call it different things. It's regional. Yeah, good point. Yep. So another market on this list, going back to the most affordable cities, is Tampa, Florida, which we're starting to look at a little bit more um, markets within the Florida. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tampa. It's great, but it just got too expensive. We did have some properties on the outskirts of Tampa, and even they got a little too expensive. So Carrie, when you told me that you were working on onboarding a new local market specialist in the in the greater Tampa area, I was really excited. Yep, it'll be some good stuff there, some good new construction, um, quality homes, so that'll be really good for investors. If we can get it. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's get it. you know, as the old saying goes, my mom always said, Jason, don't count your chickens before they hatch, okay? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, okay. But another market in Florida would be the Jacksonville and Dallas, Texas. They kind of compare as okay. far as numbers. Okay. So you'll see single family, you'll see multiplexes. Is that, am I calling it multiplexes? Is that right? I just call them plexes, but sure. Plexes. Yeah. <laughs> and then some short-term rentals as well. So uh-huh. those price points will be a little bit higher. You'll be mm-hmm. in the 140s to 350s, mm-hmm. even higher for short-term rentals. Yeah. The RV ratio will be lower. You'll be at a, around a 0.7 to 1%. So just under, because the higher you go in the price of the property, the lower you're going to go on the rent-to-value ratio. Right, right. And that's probably even a little better than that for a short-term rental. But remember something, a short-term rental is more of a business and less of an investment, okay, because it requires a little more attention. And also, you know, like I've said, I've warned you about that. I even registered a domain name related to this. Uh, and my prediction, the short-term rentals, just remember, when the economy swings, be prepared. There's a lot of supply of those out there. I think they're fine. I just want you to look at the performa, and I want you to say to yourself and do the math based on, well, what if the overall income on that property declined by 20%? If that happened, would I still be happy with it? And with these particular properties, I think you would be happy with it because the numbers are still quite good. But there's a lot of froth out there, people buying million-dollar short-term rental properties, $2 million short-term rental properties, and wow, the next big recessionary swing, (laughs) 
I don't know. I think they're going to be in trouble. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah you got to look at it. Is it going to be now good now as a short-term rental getting 1300 a month? And in five, 10 years, is it going to be good? The same thing at 1300 a month, <laughs> not just, or a week, I'm sorry, 1300 yeah, a week right. or 1300 a month, you know? And, you know, I think that, I mean, you have some definite benefits in the short-term rental thing because it allows you to play in a more cyclical type segment of the market where you have, you know, if you can only do 10 Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, you've got a bigger loan balance working for you. So you've got more leverage. So, I mean, there's definitely some benefits. Okay. No question about it. I just want you to be prepared and to say, I don't think that kind of income is going to last forever. You know, vacations are optional. And when a recession hits, they cut down on them. And yes, people might be nearby vacationers, right? They might be staycationers that just go rent a short-term rental within driving distance. That's all possible. I'm just being my conservative self. You know, I, I want to always, always be that way. So, okay, go ahead. Tell us more on yep. the cheat sheet. So the last one we have on the cheat sheet for... One of our top markets is Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. This would be one of our highest cash flowing markets, I would say, right. where you, you net around 250 to 300 a month. They will be older properties as well, 1920s to 1990s, 1% plus RV ratio. And they're going to be in the lower end price range, 60,000 to 100, 115,000. Mostly, pretty much all of ours will be single families as well. And of course, you know, you do have all the other maintenance issues of, of older homes as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, you find that nice property in the nice neighborhood and you're going to be cash flowing pretty well in, yeah. in Jackson. The cash flow is great. And we have had some problems with one of our providers there. Uh, so, you know, we have options and our investment counselors will counsel you through the right properties in the right markets. Uh, one of the things we do here is not just investment counseling, but investment therapy. <laughs> and so in our investment therapy practice, we try and match the investor up a little bit based on temperament and based on what they want with the right local market specialist and the right market. Because, uh, you know, some people, they're willing to like dig in a little more and be more engaged and more involved. And some people, they just don't want to bother with it and they're going to be annoyed so we try and help you match all that up. So that's a big part of what we do. But but good stuff. That's that's good. Those affordable markets are what we want. Those are the good linear markets where they follow commandment number five, which is thou shalt not gamble. The property must make sense the day you buy it or you don't buy it. Okay. So uh, good. Thanks for sharing that, Carrie. Yep. Do you want to go to some of these uh, comments or you know what? Right now, let's come back with that. Let's go to let's take a quick break. And let's play one of our blog casts. Uh, now, these are handpicked for you. And uh, you can also get these on your, and I better say it quietly, your Alexa device. I don't want her to hear me. So if you have an Amazon Echo and you have A-L-E-X-A, -E uh, you can subscribe to Jason Hartman's Real Estate Update there. And you can get them every day. Uh, but here's one for you right now. And we'll be back right after this. Here is today's broadcast. The Millennial Struggle, House and Home. If you participate in social media, you've likely seen the memes that put millennials under the microscope. Statements like, they're uncommitted or they spend too much time indoors. 
have a way of downplaying the types of jobs and job market they're being presented with. Then again, social media has a way of taking everything to one extreme or another. In actuality, millennials do change jobs a lot, but it isn't because they're perpetual job hoppers without the ability to see anything through. Instead, they're career-minded individuals with an eye for the future. When they're moving jobs, they're doing it for about 25% more money every time. And what to do with this extra money? Well, Jason Hartman recommends investing in real estate. But moving from job to job, millennials are developing a diverse skill set that will serve them well in the future. The reality of the job market has been that it is difficult to immediately get a high-paying job out of college. So millennials are taking lower-paying jobs for shorter periods of time. And education simply isn't enough. Employers are seeking employees with demonstrated on-the-job skills, even if that job doesn't require a college degree. Wages have stagnated across the board, increasing only in healthcare. There are pay cuts everywhere, and annual pay is about $10,000 less than what we saw 10 years ago. It's causing millennials to stick with jobs when they're able, and to switch when they've developed the skills and when an opportunity opens up. Because of this, growth requires them to switch jobs if they hope to advance. Baby boomers had pensions that encouraged them to stay with one particular company for a long time, or even a lifetime. Now we aren't seeing that and millennials risk becoming more financially at risk than their parents were years ago. And there are ways to combat this, becoming financially literate, exploring investment opportunities, saving, but the risk is real. Overall, millennials are more educated than generations before them, but they're more likely to live in poverty and be unemployed. Some attribute this to their need to find a job that corresponds with what they are passionate about, but it has more to do with the massive student loan debt they've been saddled with. So we're seeing millennials who, despite popular opinion, are focusing less on passions and more on the money they're struggling to make. As the job market begins to turn around and hiring is on the rise, millennials are also increasing a drop in unemployment numbers. There are, and not just among millennials, more people changing jobs, which is a positive sign for the job market. For millennials who wish to develop their skill set by moving jobs, there are a few things to keep in mind. First, changing companies too frequently can inhibit growth because it doesn't allow employees to develop connections and meaningful relationships with colleagues. If you leave before you have time to complete a large project, you may not have as good of a reference, making it more difficult for you to move up in your career. As a sort of compromise, you can always ask to push back your start date a month or so. It gives you time to wrap up any projects you might be working on while allowing you to develop a new set of skills. Before you assume that millennials are only moving from different jobs because they're restless or in search of the perfect passion project, remember that many desire permanency. After all, they've got some massive debt to deal with. The millennial struggle to find house and home. Or, more accurately, a place to live and a place to work. It's hard to choose a city anyway, and it's even more difficult when you're on the lookout for a job. The problem is that the best cities for jobs seem to be the most expensive to live in. Sure, there are a few that rate highly for both housing affordability and upward mobility and unemployment, but not everyone wants to live in Salt Lake City, Utah. In Dayton, Ohio, you'll be able to find a nice place to live. In San Francisco, you'll be lucky to find any place to live. Guess which is easier to find employment in. Cities like San Jose offer a lot of opportunities for millennials and in a shorter amount of time. There's a much better chance you'll advance your career more quickly in these types of cities. Ultimately, it is the great struggle of achieving the American dream. Young people go to college, get jobs, get married, buy houses, raise children. But that's difficult in areas where the job market remains relatively stagnant and wages do not increase. 
the American dream is getting harder to come by because millennials are being asked to choose. Studies have shown that the American dream is alive in some cities, but completely obsolete or at least dying in others. We're choosing cities based on short-term reasons related to our suffering finances. Jason Hartman doesn't particularly like California, having lived there himself, and that's in part because of the real estate market there. It just isn't affordable. It's easier to make more money in the West than in the Northeast, but housing prices in those large cities reflect this ease. Sure, there are outliers, but it is a growing conundrum for the millennial generation. The three cities in the U.S. with at least half of available houses being affordable to middle-class millennials and a high score for employment mobility are Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, and Salt Lake City. What do you think? Would you be willing to live in any of those cities? It is certainly hard to say, but it is worth thinking about. Before blaming millennials, who tend to be extremely motivated, tech-savvy, and educated, for moving jobs or making less money, it is important to acknowledge the specific hand they've been dealt. Instead of fighting on social media about the value of each generation, let's embrace the particular quirks of each and figure out how we develop a stable, growing economy with enough jobs for everyone. Thanks for listening to this audio blog, and please see disclaimers and important information at the website. So one of the things we did on the last Meet the Masters is on the registration, when people were buying their tickets, we added a little thing to the form and we said, tell us something interesting about yourself. <laughs> and some of these comments were awesome. And we didn't do that right at the beginning. So I know you're thinking, I didn't see that when I registered for Meet the Masters. We did it uh, like a few weeks into the registration process. So uh, not all of you got to do this, but... Thanks to those of you who did, and uh, we really enjoyed all of your comments. We can't read them all on the air. But the first one uh, is from Michael. And what did he say, Gary? Yeah, so Michael said, for 21 years of my life, home was on an island 20 miles by 30 miles. Wow. I wonder what island that was. I wish Michael would have told us. Michael, you got to go to jasonhartman.com slash ask and tell us what island. I'm, I'm dying of curiosity. Just a a little tiny island. That must have been a really interesting life there. Did you just decide you wanted to get off right away after 21 years? Does this have anything to do with your interest in real estate? You know, by now, if you've been investing with us, you probably purchased that whole island. <laughs> <laughs> it Maybe he's renting it out. Yeah, absolutely. You could rent it out to your, your former neighbors. Okay, so Robert said, that he's a full-time investor. That's really Robert and Anita. A full-time investor in multifamily. Now, I don't know what that means. Does that mean big giant apartment complexes or triplexes? I'm not sure. Passionate about real estate, citizen of the world, and has three different passports just in case. I love it. You know, my girlfriend, Carmen, has three different passports too. She has a U.S. Uh, she was born in Venezuela and uh, her family background is Spanish. So she can travel in and out of Europe real easily. And not that you'd want to go to Venezuela, but she's got three also. I'm, I'm quite envious. I wish I had another passport, you know, just in case you ever need one. I don't know why, but it sounds cool. <laughs> sounds like you're an international man of mystery. So that's good. Okay. This next comment is so cute. I love it. I love this next one. Carrie. Yeah. So Sean said, I have only kissed one girl in my life who is his wife of 24 years. Aww, that's so, so cute. cute. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. So the only question is, we got to ask Sean's wife, but I wonder, is he a good kisser? See, we don't know. <laughs> okay. Kevin said, I visited 37 countries 
44 states within the U.S., and uh, 24 of the U.S.'s national parks. Wow, that's amazing. 44 states, so you only got six more states to go to, and 37 countries. You're almost catching up with me. I'm at 83 now. One of my problems, I, Kevin, I tell you, I'm finding it really hard to get to 100 because I keep going back to the same countries over and over. Got to just get to 100. That's the goal. Anyway, okay, good. What is the next comment? So James says that he is a seasoned musical theater veteran with over 100 performances and production credits. Oh, that's got to be James that came to the Venture Alliance in Savannah, right, as a guest? Yep, it is James. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. James is doing some great stuff with his... uh, a theater uh, company and, uh, you know, just really a, a great message behind it and all that stuff. So uh, good job. That's that's awesome. Okay, so Nathan said that he just got his private pilot's license. And that is so cool. Nathan, be careful. <laughs> okay. You know, I uh, was close to getting my private pilot's license. And I got to tell you, I love aviation. I'm a big fan. I have 33 hours of flying experience. And The hardest part, well, I think it's the hardest part of flying a plane is landing. Taking off is really quite easy. You know, the wind just picks you right up. Um, But landing is, that's that's hard. And I did land a couple of times uh, when I was over in Hawaii. I uh, took a lesson over there. And I find it to be a really cool thing when you go visit places. See if you can take a flying lesson there. And I did that in Canada, uh, once on the east coast of Canada. I did it in Hawaii. And I also did it in Iceland, which I thought was interesting. It's it's neat when you can just go take a private plane out and fly it. But here's what happened. I went to ground school to get my pilot's license. And this was about 15 years ago. And for once in my life, Gary, I actually listened to my mother. And guess what she said? She She said, Jason, you are too busy to fly often. And if you don't fly often, you're going to have an accident. And she said, take that up after you decide to retire or take it easy in your life. Not when you're really motivated in business and, you know, doing all this other stuff. Do it when you can fly every week and then you'll be good at it. And you know what? I think that was great advice. I never got my license because of that. You know, mom, mom told me not to. And I actually listened to her and I think she was right. You know, the big deal in flying is the 200 hour mark. If you get 200 hours under your belt, your insurance goes way down. You're probably going to live. But until then, you better be really careful. So Nathan, be careful. But congratulations. That's awesome. I love that. All right. What's the next one? Uh, another James, he said he's ran with the bulls in Spain. <laughs> wow. James, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> that is something else. That yeah. is super wow. scary. I'd love to hear more about that one. Wow. Yeah. Well, he made it out, so yeah, that's good. Yeah, but apparently he made it. Now, when you saw James at Meet the Masters, did he have any uh, wounds or anything, you know, like a uh, you know, like a big gouge in, in his chest from horns or anything. Hopefully not, right? Yeah. Clean cut, clean cut. Yeah, good. very good, very good. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, these were awesome comments. Sorry we couldn't read them all. We had a whole bunch more, and they're all great. So thank you for sharing an intimate look in your life, especially that you only kiss one girl. <laughs> that's cool. Thank you for that. And uh, Carrie, let's wrap it up. Any uh, closing thoughts, anything going on in the market you want to share with our listeners, questions that uh, your clients are asking you as an investment counselor or anything in particular? 
You know, a lot of it is just which market to invest in, what we just went over, where to start, how to get going. So have a session with your investment counselor. We kind of covered some of the basics for which markets are good for appreciation, cash flow. But yeah, for the most part, it's getting started or getting past that number 10 mark. So working with a lot of clients on portfolio financing and finishing up their conventional loans. Right. And what you mean by finishing up is getting them their first 10. And again, uh, if you're married, that's each of you, right? Each spouse can get 10 of those loans as long as, you know, both can qualify under the normal qualifying requirements. But, But 10 conventional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac style loans are available to each person. And then after that, you got to get a little more creative and we can certainly help you do it. Uh, it's not going to be quite as good a deal as those uh, conventional, what they call agency loans, but still there's some very good non-conventional financing out there. And and we have a lot of good sources for that. So we can help you with that too. So uh, great, good stuff. Uh, Carrie, thanks for joining me. Thank you to all of you who have been forwarding your spam to me at reviews at jasonhartman.com. Please forward your real estate spam. And here's what I mean by that is uh, there are some unscrupulous people out there who are spamming. And, you know, we have people that have come to us and said, hey, who is this person? Who is this company? I never signed up for their email and suddenly I'm getting emails from them. They're spamming me. So, uh, yeah, we want to know about that because we want to clean up the industry, clean it up. So can spam, as they say, right? Uh, so yeah, forward your spam to reviews at jasonhartman.com, reviews at jasonhartman.com. And thank you to all of those of you who've done it so far and keep it coming. We will see you tomorrow on the next episode. And until then, happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.